0: You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. I'd like to cut to the chase and introduce our guest for today, Nick Earl, who's a vice president and general manager at Electronic Arts. Uh, prior to taking on this role, Nick was actually in charge of the uh, Electronic Arts uh, Redwood Shores Studio as the um, chief operating officer and had very, very interesting games under his um, responsibility and he 's got a great lineup for us today. so Nick we 're really looking forward to having you back at Stanford and look forward to sharing your insights with us let 's welcome Nick Earl. Thanks for having me. I know I'm competing with the WHO tonight, um, so hopefully this will be as uh, interesting for you guys. Um, I think the first thing I'm going to do is uh, just start with a little video of some next-gen software and then we'll kind of jump into the content of the presentation. So that's just a little taste of some of the products that uh, we are uh, working on and, and are in the process of shipping. Um, we're the dawn of yet another generation of hardware systems out there, and it's very timely we're having this discussion today because so much is going on in our industry, um, and that's really what I'm going to focus on today, what is happening in the video game business, um, talk, and then talk a lot about the strategy that EA is bringing um, in order to, uh, to deal with that because there's just so, so much going on. So, uh, 1982 is when Electronic Arts was founded. Um, It was founded on the notion of celebrating Uh, game makers as artists. It was really sort of a united artists approach where um, Electronic Arts was essentially going to publish and distribute the creation from game makers. Um, The realities have sort of changed um, these days where it's really harder to do that and instead I'd say we celebrate teams of game makers. Um, In 1982 one or two people could create a product. Today it takes a hundred, sometimes two hundred people to do it. But we still believe that um, uh, we are here to kind of change the, the landscape of, um, of entertainment. And as a result, we're the leading um, uh, publisher of video games and computer games in the world. We have 7,000 people in the company. 5,000 are on the development side, actually responsible for making games, every, right from the original idea through to the final, um, to the, to the final disc. And 2,000 are, approximately are on the, so, on the um, sales and marketing side. Uh, we live in, a, in an age where gaming has really become pop culture. Uh, it is ubiquitous. It is out of the closet. Uh, it is uh, really a, a new age um, that we live in in terms of how important gaming is, certainly compared to where we were in 1982. The technology that we have uh, available for, uh, for gaming today has really changed uh, what we can deliver. Um, lots of debate about whether games were better back, back in the day compared to today compared to today just based on the technology. But I think based on the number of people who who play video games, it's uh, uh, pretty certain the technology has had a very positive change. So what does Electronic Arts do? Um, We do a lot of things. One of the things we like to say probably more than anything else is really create properties, create franchises, from, really from features or a collection of features right through to the notion of a franchise. It's very important for us. Uh, we do both license games, whether it's a sports license or a movie license, uh, for example, Lord of the Rings and Superman, and we, do, we try to create a lot of original IP, which is very, very tough, but um, rewarding. Uh, as I mentioned, we're, we're big. Uh, we're very big inside the industry. We're the leaders by far. And we use that to our advantage in terms of what we have to offer. Um, we really like, like to think we have got a very broad portfolio in terms of the type of games that we release, sports products, owned IP licenses. Um, and then in terms of a, 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 an environment for people to come work, it's uh, very stable, a lot of innovation going on. And we sort of cover everything that happens in, in the industry. We're spending a lot of time and energy and money and investment on the next generation. And it's interesting we're having the talk tonight because next week, PlayStation 3 and Nintendo Wii launch. The Microsoft X360 system is out. It's been out for almost a year, and it's been very successful. Um, But I would say next week really officially kicks off this next generation. Uh, One of the uh, very important initiatives inside of Electronic Arts, despite the fact that we have so many studios around the world, there's 13 of them um, at this moment, is that we really act as one studio. So there's a tremendous amount of sharing of technology, of people, of resources, um, features, uh, anything that we create that we can share across the studios. We do, I think that's one of the greatest things about EA and something that I found surprising when I started there, that such a big, kind of disparate uh, group of, uh, of studios could actually work together in concert the way we do. Um, something that's sort of relevant to this group Just some of the things we're working on from an engineering standpoint. Uh, Engineering games is incredibly challenging because you work in a very constrained environment in terms of memory and throughput. So you're trying to sort of compete with other media. You're trying to compete with other uh, publishers and and developers, all of whom are trying everything they can to get more out of the out of the hardware. So these are just sort of some of the things we're working on. And one of them here, UCap, is uh, I want to show you a video of. Um, This is uh, a new capture motion capture technique that we used uh, on two games last year, actually that we launched this year. One is Tiger Woods, and we feel it's really taken the uh, motion capture, especially facial um, animation, to the next level. So let's run this movie here. I think it's fair to say we actually captured his smile, and uh, that's probably a good thing. So, uh, talk a little bit about the industry. It's about a $25 billion um, uh, at retail market. Uh, it, uh, it was uh, in 2005, and that's the software side only. Um, it's currently the North American business is bigger than Hollywood box office. That's theatrical release that does not include DVD, but it kind of gives a sense of just how big the uh, business has become. Um, In terms of the kind of the demographics, I think a lot of people are surprised to know that the average age of a gamer in North America is 29. I think most people think it is 9 or maybe 19, but not 29. Um, And uh, interestingly, uh, there's been a a huge increase in the number of women gamers lately. Close to 40% of gamers are, are now women, which is great. It's really broadening the market. Um, Again, sort of just to play into that a little bit, it's just a graphic that shows how many people are gaming every single week. And you watch 4% are going to see a a movie in the theater, and close to 60% are playing some kind of video game every week. So there's our rank. Um... Obviously, we've got a commanding lead on the second-place publisher, Activision, based down in Los Angeles. You know, this is both good and bad. As a growth company, it's sort of hard to continue to grow the way that Wall Street wants us to. Um, and it's sort of hard to maneuver the, uh, sort of the, 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 the carrier when you, when you need to change strategies, which we're doing right now. Um, so, you know, again, being, being big and being successful is, is a sort of a double-edged sword. And right now, I think one of the great challenges at EA is how do you kind of move this $3 billion business along to really, I guess, the next hill. Um, we're going to talk a lot about that today. So where's the industry going? There's a lot of things happening in the industry that we'll talk about. Um, I just think it's important to kind of start off with um, uh, the reminder that the bulk of the business by far and away is still packaged goods. So when you think about going into Electronics Boutique or GameStop, as it now is, uh, or Best Buy uh, or, or Walmart, that is by far and away where the business is today and will be certainly for years to come. With that said, it's just not growing at a very fast pace, certainly not what we're used to. Um, and we're also learning that it's just getting incredibly expensive to launch games. So making games we've known for a long time is very expensive. You could spend $15, $20 million making a game these days. Um, to launch a game has become more expensive. What you need to spend at retail, you're really looking for events that um, allow you to kind of rise above the noise, and there's a lot of noise out there. So it really requires looking beyond And that beyond includes things like mobile. So mobile is uh, kind of the new hot thing I say along with online in terms of an opportunity to create games and market them, growing at a very, uh, very fast um, growth rate. Uh, If you think about mobile phones as a device to play video games, it really is by far and away the largest installed base. Installed base means number of of hardware units out there. Um, With that said, it's completely fragmented. So there are all different types of devices with different user interfaces, different size screens, different technologies, which makes it very challenging, Um, but it can't be ignored. We've got about a third of people in America playing games on a mobile device. Um, One of the other other things that's really moving rapidly right now is Asia is really coming alive as a market for gaming. Uh, Japan has always, or has been a market, or has been a powerhouse market, um, but we're not entirely positive that it's going to stay that way. There's sort of changing demographics there with birth rates, um, and it just feels like it is not, uh, it's not the kind of growth market that, um, you, know, that you look around, the rest, you see in the rest of Asia. China, clearly the new frontier a lot of people over there and, and certainly a big market but again you got challengers in terms of how you joint venture um, it's really hard to set up companies, it's hard to bring your profits out and IP protection is a perennial issue so um, the mitigation there is really to go online and, and that's sort of a a whole new uh, suite of technologies. And then South Korea is an interesting uh, market it's it is so ingrained in the culture there that the best gamers are really celebrated as celebrities and revered. Um, cyber cafes are really big. It's really it's a way that they uh, socialize and there's tremendous government support going into um, gaming in, in uh, South Korea. Another recent phenomenon that's really gaining steam right now and getting a lot of press is in-game advertising or dynamic advertising. Uh, very controversial um, and terms of the way it's being received in the marketplace, um, publishers love it because it is a you know it's a great revenue um, source, uh, or certainly has the great potential to be. And you can see that stat there that analysts see this growing to a billion dollars um, a year by 2009. So uh, the the eyeballs are there, and gaming and and advertise advertises one access. Um, I think one of the interesting questions is, is, to, is to wonder whether gaming evolves to kind of free and, and, uh, and pay the way that television has. Uh, has. So well, we'll see how that happens, and it's certainly a possibility that there could be free games in the future that are advertising-based and paid paid ones that are non-advertising. I've um, got a couple slides that are talking about Hollywood and, uh, and gaming. As you can see, it's sort of the CG that is used in in feature films, feature animation. Uh, visual effects, and that it's used in gaming is now very similar, it's very close, meaning that we compete for scarce resources, we as, as developers and employers of developers, um, with, um, with Hollywood. And you get a sense of the, um, the type of, of characters that we're creating in our world um, from a technical standpoint are approaching. Uh, certainly the trajectory is, is to be there at pre-rendered film at some point in the near future, um, so we call it kind of getting, getting pixar in in that respect. Um, as I mentioned earlier it 's becoming incredibly expensive to develop games. It already was expensive to develop movies um, it 's sort of a, interesting that you can make a movie much cheaper than you can make a game these days, um, and that used to sort of really used to be the opposite, but with the invention of the digital um, video camera and um, editing offline editing tools uh, it can be done fairly inexpensively it's very hard to make um, competitive games these days uh, for less than multiple millions of dollars and at uh, you know when you put the resources that EA does into games you're talking you're in well into the tens of millions. In any event this is really just to point out that clearly there is going to be and starting to be partnerships with Hollywood and, uh, and gaming and there's been a lot of talk about this for the last sort of ten years but it feels like it's really happening now. So continuing, continuing on with uh, what's happening in the industry, there are learning and family games that are really um, uh, taking hold now. For, I'm sure many of, many here have played Brain Age, which is an NDS game, and this is just incredibly popular. It's uh, just taken off in, in Japan and really starting to take off here as well. And that's really broadening the market, which is a very positive thing. Um, I mentioned a minute ago about the Nintendo Wii launching next week. The Nintendo Wii is, um, uh, I think, probably the best example of a a, really and truly immersive controller. Uh, This device, for those who don't know about it, um, it's called a nunchuck, and essentially it it really does look like one. It's uh, it's sort of two things you hold in your hand. We're going to see a video of it in a minute. And you really and truly interact with the software. So swinging a tennis racket in a tennis game is like this, and swinging a golf is, is really like this. And it really takes things to the next level. So let's have a look at a little video and it'll give you a sense of where controllers are going. And I think this is going to be consistent for other systems. So this is really going to usher in a whole new age of, in terms of the controller devices. And you can just see how much more interactive it is, the way you, you can really use your whole body. Uh, another concept that is really taking hold is user-generated content. I think we all sort of know this. Uh, this is really happening in many uh, media, including TV. Um, it is really what we think it really defines as kind of next big generation we call millennials, or they're 12 to 28. And they're very, you know, very big in number and very into creating their own um, me- uh, media and sort of creating their own entertainment. Machinima is a really good example for those who don't know Machinima. You can take a game and essentially create a movie and then um, post that on places like YouTube. And there's a lot of that going on. So one of the things we're thinking about is how do you create a game that's all about customized content. And we think we got something in motion, but uh, I'll get to that in a second. And then the, uh, along with mobility, uh, mobile phones, I think the other kind of major area of growth, there's a really change in the business is online and uh you know this is a profound change in what's what's happening i think this is you know represented a significant challenge for ea which has been kind of king of the packaged good hit um, uh products and really king of that particular hill um, which has been all offline and now the really the world is going online and we're having to react pretty quickly uh growing at a very high high rate um, it, it allows you to uh, distribute more content. Um, there's obviously a great economic bonus for that, but obviously a great challenges. communities are sprouting up everywhere. Um, we really see two core segments in the online world, the casual and and the hardcore. The casual we think is more like sort of checkers and chess and those sorts of games. MMOs we think really defines the, uh, the core uh, gaming segment, but uh, there, there's a good chance that we'll see some, some casual massively multiplayer online games, which is what MMO stands for. Uh, just a graph showing the uh, active subscriptions for MMO in North America, uh, starting in January of '97, virtually nothing, uh, going up to where it is today in the uh, three million range. And this is this is actually just a, a few uh, a few franchises, but you just get a sense of that growth rate, and it's really showing no signs of, uh, of slowing down. Uh, virtual worlding, we just think again, has you know become so popular and accepted. Uh, years ago, it was you know what I sort of think about in the closet, and now it's completely out, and everyone's doing it, and uh, so much so that World of Warcraft, which is by far and away the most successful massively multiplayer game right now, has six million subscribers, all paying a monthly uh, monthly fee for that game. Community is huge. There's a lot of examples of of this going on. I think the best example in our business is uh, what's happening with Xbox Marketplace or Xbox Live. And for those who have an Xbox 360, um, you really have a a sneak peek into where the future is with regards to creating communities uh, online in the video game world. Um, So lots of content that's being downloaded, a lot of uh, uh, people getting together and playing games. Uh, Two billion Microsoft points have been spent to date. Uh, it's just a staggering number, considering that that has only been around for a short while. Digital distribution talked a little bit about this before. This is truly happening. It feels like the last generation of PlayStation 2 and Xbox was really a dress rehearsal for this, and now it's really uh, now it's really here. So uh, we and and uh, all publishers are taking this very seriously. Um, there's lots of different models here, whether it's a, a subscription model or pay per play. But at the end of the day, this is just a huge uh, margin improvement from packaged goods, for obvious reasons: no cost of goods, um, no or no uh, no returns or or few returns, and uh, this is definitely happening. Microtransactions, lots of example of this in in our world. I'm sure most of us have have downloaded something from iTunes. Uh, Ringtones are happening. eBay is a great example. In our world, we're seeing lots of expansion packs and buying of swords or new sorts of uh, gloves in Tiger Woods. and uh, There's just lots of things that are happening in the microtransaction. People are buying gold uh, for real money, so they have gold inside of massively multiplayer and role-playing games. So I think a big question for us is can we organize a game or create a game to be an entertainment hub the way that MySpace is. I think MMOs certainly have the potential for that. Um, Marketplace we talked about. Can EA Sports be the new ESPN despite the fact that we're close partners? It's something that's, you know, of great interest to us to sort of figure out how to create a a community around that. Um, So I think we're going to see a lot of innovations there and we're thinking long and hard about how we do it. So on that note, what are the things we're doing? Uh, on the uh, package goods sides, uh, we're in good. We're in great shape because we're sort of continuing all of our franchises and creating new ones. We've got, we're the number one publisher on X360, and we should be that way on PS3. I think Nintendo Wii will be harder for us because Nintendo is such a powerful and strong creator of software. It's going to be really hard to compete with them head on. But I see. I could see us being number two there. Uh, same for handhelds: the PSP, the NDS. Uh, that's a is a fairly uh, a known market and. A commodity for us so uh, I think we'll be will be strong in that respect and certainly our core demographic on the mobile phone front we acquired a company called Jamdat. Jamdat was the leading publisher of cell phone games in North America and a leading, in, uh, leading one in Europe uh, so it was just a good combination of our distribution power, our marketing muscle, uh, and our IPs with the company that's really sort of figured out how to grow and be successful in the mobile phone space. And there are a lot of publishers, so um, that, was a, that was, I think, a great purchase for us. We talked about creating IP, intellectual property. Um, this has been a, a huge initiative inside of Electronic Arts. EA is probably better known for licenses or for buying properties. We're not really known for creating from scratch, so there's a lot of that that's happening and uh, great effort going into it. We did about 40% of our revenue last year came from from IP that we owned and we, are, are, we think we're going to be able to get to 50, 50% next year and continue to grow. So higher margin, but I think probably more important for us is that it is very engaging for developers to create software and games that we own as opposed to having to stick to a, a license or an established set of rules. We talked about how Hollywood and games are are really starting to partner. Uh, we've got a partnership with Spielberg uh, on doing three properties that we we will own, um, and uh, and he may make movies out of that's you know that'll be sort of an ancillary business. Um, but he is very engaged in this. He's he sits at our LA office um, a studio uh, once a week. His son actually works there, and so it's just a, something very close to him personally. But it's just one example of how the movie business and the, and the games business is really starting to merge. With regards to music, uh, we are looking at um, a situation where songs are being broken by video games and this is sort of a recent phenomenon but in Madden, NBA Live and Sims uh, we've seen pretty successful examples of, um, of rock stars and pop artists actually launching games so much so that uh, you know, it's almost more important for them to do that with a game than it is on a, on a movie soundtrack. So this is something we are very focused on, and we've had um, we've had great success. Uh, we talked about user-generated content in machinima. I just want to show you one that was created by someone uh, using Sims. I think this was uh, a uh, the roughest, well, toughest checker player there ever was, but he's no match for this tough bird. Even Annie tries to beat this foul, but this is one tough critter which leads us to the moral of our story. Uh-huh. If you can't beat them, eat them. <laughs> for teen. So that was created. That was off a PC expansion pack, and uh, there's a lot of that going on. There's, there's literally thousands of those out. Um, just talking a little bit more about user-generated content. I think The Sims is our, probably our best example of a franchise that is uh, we're able to do this. Um, uh, in terms of the number of websites and the, the number of uh, that are full with content from based on Sims products, so this is this has been a, this has been a great success for us, and hopefully more, more to come. So sort of jumping back to online, what are we doing there? Uh, we've this has sort of been the main focus for us as a company in terms of trying to implement a new strategy. So on the casual side, we've got a, uh, a division called Pogo, which is all about casual games. We've got uh, a little over a million subscribers there uh, that are, that are uh, monthly subscribers. On the, on the hardcore side, uh, we purchased a, uh, a group called Mythic out in Washington. Uh, they, do, they, they did a game called Dark Age of Camelot, and they're doing a game now, Warhammer, which is a great license, and we hope to compete with World of Warcraft. Um, as hard as that is to do. Um, That's certainly the intention. A lot of downloads that is going over Xbox Marketplace, Xbox Live. Um, We're trying to figure out how we can take EA Sports and create a community um, and a business around that online. Uh, We've signed deals with Massive and IGA on the advertising side, so a lot of work is going into dynamic advertising. Again, unsure exactly where this is going, but it's certainly something that cannot be ignored at this moment. And then user-generated content, a lot of happening, stuff happening in The Sims, a lot of success. The next one for us is Spore, and Spore is a product that we're doing at my studio that Will Wright um, has created. Will Wright, for those who don't know, uh, created The Sims and SimCity, and this is, his, this is his next big thing. Um, I think the great opportunity in online that no one owns at this point is the console, massively multiplayer on- online game. Consoles have not had the ability to hook up to each other until now, and I, I think it'll be interesting to see if we can create a persistent world um, in the console business. I'm sure it's going to happen. I think that's kind of the next big hill, um, because the video game business is much bigger than the PC business, so uh, it stands to reason that this is uh, even higher potential than something like World of Warcraft. Warhammer, I just mentioned, this is the, um, the game that uh, Mythic's working on, and I was going to show you a little movie here. There's, there's some fun for the whole family there. <laughs> All right, so um, this is just kind of a fusion of, uh, of online and, uh, and Asia. Uh, one of the things we're doing right now is taking some of our packaged goods product like FIFA, which is our big um, soccer game, um, and creating an online an online experience. has been a big success. Still early, but certainly a good start for us in terms of the number of unique users and the, the peak uh, concurrent users. Pogo, I mentioned earlier, we think of this as kind of a my space for 35-year-old women. Uh, it's interesting for us, for a company that's really pale to kind of testosterone driven young men, uh, to be able to have a community for, uh, for 30, 30-year-old women uh, is, is sort of a, a, a example of how the market is uh, is broadening. And then finally, um, Spore, uh, this is, I think, uh, holds great promise for us. Uh, something that I'm personally very involved in. Uh, it's one of the franchises in my studio. And uh, uh, it is, you know, promises to be kind of our next opportunity to create user-generated content. And really, it's what the, what the game's all about. The concept is you sort of start as a cellular creature and work all the way up to dominating the universe and sort of everything in between. It's epic in scale and scope. It's only something that Will would be able to do, and um, we think it's going to be a great great example of a game that allows you to customize your experience. So kind of in summary, um, like I said earlier, this is very timely to be able to have this session here tonight because we are just sort of in the dawn of this new age, uh, and uh, it is something that is really kind of dominating every, every thought and every ounce of energy in the company right now. Um, we're in a position of strength, but there's a lot we need to do to be able to kind of maintain our lead and grow our lead. Um, and so on that note, we're really focused on the next-gen consoles because that's the core business, but mobility and online are, are really the sort of the future. So that's it for the presentation. I guess we'll go to Q and A, or not? Okay. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Brainage as an example of what I call a serious game, but I didn't see that as part of the strategy. Are you thinking at all of getting into the serious games? Yeah, we are. Um, I think you know, actually it's a kind of a it's a cross between a learning and a, and a serious game. Um, that is, you know, that's not a core business for us. Obviously, we, we've we've dabbled around in the interca- in the educational or edutainment space and never been successful. But the success of that of that game makes us think the market is changing, so we are looking at it. I didn't really have any good content to kind of bring up here. We have some stuff that's just too early, but uh, yes, we are looking at it. And with that said, it you know it, it feels almost sort of a rounding error compared to what we're doing for online and mobility. Yeah. You mentioned that creating games is a million-dollar proposition a lot of years. So what do you think of startups trying to create games? Is it, is it very difficult or very hard for startups to start creating games? You know, it's interesting. If you'd asked me that... Yes, yeah, sorry. The question was, uh, it is an expensive proposition to start developing a game, so what about the idea of starting a developer or company to, to build games right now? Is that hard? Um, my answer is... Uh, a year ago, I would have said it's really hard, it's don't do it, run screaming for the hills, don't even think about it. I think what's happened in, in this last year is that uh, with Xbox, Xbox Live and Xbox Marketplace, um, we've seen examples of games that could be by, created by a small group. That are sort of funding off a credit card, uh, the way that you see these small independent movies being funded, um, and they could find success um, selling directly to an audience, a kind of a captive audience through, through that means. So I think the world is changing a little bit in that respect, and it's interesting because a year ago I would have said it's just impossible for a small developer to really get up and running unless it's a, an experienced splinter group off a larger developer that's capitalized in some way. Um, maybe they've got a shot, although it's highly risky. So I guess in summation, I think, um, I think it's, it's, it's possible. You need to think about what your audience is. You need to think about what kind of game you're building. To go and try to compete against Madden or to compete against one of these big movie licenses, that is impossible. To create an art, some kind of a smaller footprint game, an arcade game, a game that's for the cell phone, that's actually, that's actually doable. Yeah? Tom, um, you're in China. Are you getting so the question is, are we making games specifically for China and how do we protect our property? Uh, the answer to the, f- to the first question is yes, we are. We have a, a studio that we just created in Shanghai. Uh, we have a publishing division that's already out there. And we have some joint ventures that are in motion, and we are creating games that are specifically for that marketplace. Uh, for us, it's a real learning experience because we're very understanding of what the interests are in the Western societies in North America and, and Europe. We don't know a lot about what's, what's really um, in demand in, in, in Asia, and we're still still learning. But, yes, we're creating some games over there. We're, we're uh, kind of reformatting some of our existing products, like I showed you um, FIFA Online. That could be a product that we could take into China. The second part of the question is how do you protect your IP? Really the best way and really the only way that we know of right now to protect your IP is to make it a purely online experience. Uh, to put a packaged good uh, product out there means that you'll basically sell one copy and you know, hundreds of thousands if not millions of people will be playing it. Uh, that's not interesting. Um, to to do it online, where you can sort of check the heartbeat of the machine and make sure that they are, you know, they're a paying customer is feasible, and that's really the way around protecting your IP. It's a it's a real challenge. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm wondering though, what extent you see advances in computer graphics being driven by the games industry and the entertainment industry in general, and what extent by academic research, um, and also looking to the future as you fix Pixar and you're able to make simulations which are more representative reality. Do you see companies like EA branching into things more like simulation and creating a virtual Los Angeles instead of a virtualized one that you can interview in the real world? So let's so say the first question is um, thinking about uh, what's really driving what's really driving uh, CG advances. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I haven't really thought a lot about wh- where it's coming from. My, my hunch is that it is coming more from feature animation and games than probably anywhere else. Um, I haven't seen a lot of examples coming out of academia that um, are kind of driving it. With that said, there are some great programs in schools these days. uh, Here and I think CMU, USC are some schools that kind of pop to mind that are really focusing on computer graphics as, you know, as, a, as a discipline and, um, and video games as a discipline. So we're seeing a lot of really bright young people who are coming into uh, into electronic arts um, with kind of new thinking and new ideas and are helping us kind of get get to that next level. I'm sorry, what was the second question? The question is, do you see EA ever taking your expertise in doing something right. besides so will EA ever branch out into other things, you know, sort of serious things beyond games? Uh, I hope not. I, I, I actually, I'm, I'm kidding when I say that because um, obviously it would be potentially good and good for society, um, uh, good for humanity possibly. I think the truth is there's so much to do in entertainment right now and there's so much, there's so much changes going on and so many sort of interesting new areas to, to be in. I can't see that happening in the foreseeable future. Um, but, you know, it's always a possibility in, you know, sort of five to ten years. But certainly not not in the immediate future. Yeah? you the technology that's been used in the Xbox and the future generation, uh, I'm curious, what do your developers have to say about the programming style of these new machines? Because it's non-video. <coughs> do you have any yeah. on that? So the question is, what, what, is uh, what's the, what is it like to program for these next generation machines, PS3, X, X360? Uh, in particular, uh, it is every generation presents a whole new set of challenges. This is by far and away the most complex um, generation uh, from an engineering standpoint. Um, you know, an order of magnitude greater. Uh, these are all sort of parallel processing machines. There's multi-threading going on. It is. It really takes a a different architecture. Architecture. It really takes architects that we don't currently have um, that we're having to bring into the company to understand how to kind of um, distribute uh, your your uh, en- engineering that's going on. Uh, there's these sort of cellular chips and architecture of a PlayStation 3 in particular um, present sort of a whole new range of challenges. So. Um, With that said, uh, we always figure out how to do it. It takes, you know, the engineers are very grumpy for the first year and a half of developing for these new systems and then as soon as they kind of figure it out and we launch, we launch our first suite of products, they kind of get past it and they start to get excited about what the potential is for these machines and you saw some of the stats and a couple of my slides the uh... you know the the possibilities are really exciting in terms of what you can do given the compute the raw computing power of these machines so generally speaking very tough for the year leading up to a launch of a system and after that you, know, you get pretty comfortable and and over the ensuing years five six seven eight years of a of a particular hardware cycle you really start to explore the, what the real boundaries of that architecture are. Yeah? But, uh, you work with three main uh, new, companies, uh, new companies, new consoles. What would be your bet for that? The, for the winner? Three, like the Wii, right. PlayStation 3, and the Xbox? Yeah. Uh, so the question is, who's going to be the winner between Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, and Nintendo Wii? Um, it, it's actually interesting because PlayStation has been the clear winner in the last two generations, PlayStation 1 um, and then PlayStation 2. Uh, now with PlayStation 3, it's going to be a lot tighter race. And so what we see is a fairly even playing field. Um, if you kind of look globally, in Japan, Microsoft is not going to really get a foothold. So it's really going to be PlayStation. It's going to be Nintendo. In Europe, uh, PlayStation is going to be very strong, and X360 and Nintendo are you know, going to be sort of fighting for second place. Probably X360 will get it, and in North America, um, pretty close to, to even. The way that we think that's going to net out globally is PlayStation will probably have a majority um, from an installed base standpoint, but very close second place is going to be um, Xbox, and you know, maybe right there is going to be Nintendo. Uh, we, we do think that Nintendo Wii may be kind of the, the second machine that you get, certainly for the, the, uh, the serious gamers who buy a second machine. They're going to buy either PlayStation or X360 because the games are going to be very similar. It's a very similar class of machine. And then they're going to buy the Nintendo Wii because those games are going to be very different based on that video we saw and all of the different controls you can do and the different style of games. Yeah. I know lots of press has been given to the high price of the PS3 and Xbox, but the Nintendo's machine is more expensive than it has been historically, especially with the controllers and things. So, the question is what do I think of the high price, relatively speaking, the high price of the machines that are launching now. Um, it's a little troubling, I think, uh, to you know, to look at the landscape, the, the launch landscape of uh, PlayStation Three in particular. It could be six, seven hundred dollars by the time you get a couple games, and eight, nine hundred dollars if you get a few, a few peripherals with it. With that said, they're going to sell every single unit that they ship, um, certainly for the first six months. So the demand is certainly there, and uh, there are plenty of examples of of devices like this that have sold at that at that at that number. But in order to get to the next level, for example, PlayStation 2 um, had sold over hundred million units at an install base of over 100 million units. To get into that level, you need to be down in the 200, maybe 150, 150 range before you really can, uh, can go out and, and, uh, and sell in those numbers. So just sort of like most, um, you know, most, most products, um, audio video products, the price comes down and the market expands. And so we just don't think this is going to be uh, something that's going to hold the business back in any way. It's just the, the demand is there at that price. I know it sounds surprising, but it is. Yeah. Um, You talked about how EA started out as kind of a publisher for games made by smaller groups like programs, maybe even single people, and how it's kind of evolved into um, a company that builds franchises, basically, which has allowed it to become a household name, at least, you know, amongst people I know. And so um, with the the emergence of user-generated content, um, how do you see EA sort of, like, what do you see their role as in terms of continuing creating franchises, because it's almost like EA might not be needed if you've got an Xbox Live online community, and then people creating their own content. So where do you see It's EA really depressing products? that you just said that. I mean, I <laughs> nothing to do. That's all I know how to do is make games. Um, so the, cre- the question is, with user-generated content, is that going to change the, the nature of, um, of you know, a company like Electronic Arts to compete and do, do what it does? Um, i don 't think so user generated content to me is something that complements the games and the franchises that we create i don 't think it 's going to supplement um, the games that we create I think that that gamers are really looking for um, a a sort of a large experience when they when they purchase a game of fifty sixty dollars and they 're looking for experience that sort of could be twenty thirty forty eighty hours of polished gameplay. I think that Machinima, user-generated content is a component of that, a feature of that, but not something that would eclipse eclipse that. Um, I I think it's you know really interesting to look at movies because movies uh, now can be really created by a small group of people, and there's a lot of examples. Blair Witch is probably top of the list of a of a movie that was created for virtually nothing, and and look look what a you know how meaningful that was in terms of kind of pop culture. Um, I. I guess there's a chance that games could evolve to that state where tools are available um, for uh, for a small group of people to create a game that really to, it, it does that sort of that has that sort of distribution and that, and that sort of effect. Um, but I do not see that being the norm. I see that being an exception. And I certainly feel that user-generated content is a feature set and a, and a um, kind of a complement to the games that we create. Yeah. Games. What's your take on on-deck versus off-deck distribution, what's your relationship with carriers? On-deck on or off-deck, what's that? Uh, so going through a carrier or just going through the internet to get to uh, cell phone users? Um, don't really have an opinion, so the question is on-deck, off-deck, what, what's, what's my take on that? I, I you know, I don't really have an opinion, I'm really not a part of the mobile group, so I wasn't really even aware that that's, that is an issue. Um, uh, you know, I think the mobile business in, in general is evolving right now at a really rapid pace. And I think a lot, a lot of distribution questions are still yet to be um, answered. And a lot of sort of marketing questions and uh, demographic questions have just really not been answered. It's just sort of, it's very early, really in the nascent stages of, of uh, mobile gaming. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if it's even established sort of thinking on, on what, what's the way to go. Yeah. Um, you were saying that the console MMORPGs are going to be the next wave of, like, big, big. So how do you see that the extra price of having the, like, to say, Xbox, you have to pay for the live subscription, and then I'm assuming an MMORPG subscription versus your computer, where you all, like, pretty much everyone has an Internet connection. Do you think that's going to be a big uh, change in how much how many people will subscribe? So the question is... Uh, uh, console-based massively multiplayer games. The fact that you have to pay uh, an, an online uh, or a fee to say to Xbox Marketplace, and then obviously pay a subscription to whoever's publishing the massively multiplayer game. I, my sense is that uh, anyone who—not anyone—I think many, many people uh, who have a console machine are just going to naturally pay for their their subscription to live, and it's just going to treat it as though it was their their internet connection, and not really think about that, not add that to the the annual subscription or the monthly subscription of, a, of an MMO game game. The amount of business that we're seeing done on Marketplace right now, we we think is staggering. It's way beyond what we thought, uh, both for us and just sort of in general. Um, So I just and clearly, these, the guys who are doing and the guys and the women who are, who are uh, playing and, and downloading and doing microtransactions over live are kind of the top of the pyramid. I mean, they're sort of the, they're the early end uh, into doing stuff like this. So we can't sort of judge the entire market based on their behavior, but it is well beyond what we thought they would be doing. So I think that just sort of translates out that it's not going to hold that market back. And when you consider the power of 100 million dedicated gaming machines, which is what Xbox V sixty could get to. That's what PlayStation 2 got to last generation. Uh, that is a captive audience for a game like that. And they are there, unlike PCs, which you use for a variety of reasons, those machines are there for gaming. So you look, you got about a, a very captive and dedicated audience. Yeah? And if we look at EA's strategy, um, it was sports, sports games and all their sports franchises. It seems like it's taking conservative strategy to to pay a lot of money in terms of licensing you know, you know I and mean, I guess several hundred million dollars in the case of ESPN and, um, and NFL. NFL, yeah. So, uh, I mean, can you talk about the strategy, you know, like vis-a-vis it's like building their own sports games without, you know, and not paying $500 million to have players' names on, on their backs or just some type of, you know, real you know, legitimacy with, with actual players you know, as opposed to spending it on different you know, game development or, or other strategies yep. not, not trade-off and, and, and talk about it going forward also. Yeah, so the question is, I, well, I would boil it down to, is it really worth spending the license fees on NFL and other sports licenses, uh, ESPN, as opposed to spending that money elsewhere or maybe creating, um, um, I guess, sort of generic, generic sports or sports of generic players? Um, I guess my answer would be the kind of the verdict has come in that uh, the authenticity of real players of the NFL PA, the NFL, the authenticity of having the teams of being the NFL uh, base game, despite the fact that it's very expensive, that verdict has come in and it's a resounding, uh, it is absolutely worth doing. Um, it is, uh, there's room for really only one, obviously one person to do it with the NFL, but with other sports licenses uh, and, uh, for example, the NBA, there are multiple players and it's still worth it to, to split up the market uh, and, and go after and spend that kind of money. With that said, it's shrinking our margins and it is one of kind of the prime drivers for us to create our own IP. So, you know, I think it's a very good question because this you know, sort of highlights um, one of kind of the strategic imperatives of a company like Electronic Arts is you've got, this existing business that we have to service and we have to kind of continue to grow, and yet the business over here is where we need to get to, and one of the components over here is creating our new IP. Uh, not only is that a lot more engaging to people who are doing it and you know, makes for a happier workplace, um, it's also much higher in margin and therefore a healthier business to get to. So I think we're, as a company, um, we have kind of the luxury of having a broad enough portfolio where you can do all of the above. Um, it 'll be interesting to see in five or ten years if, for example, even if we even have the NFL license um, because there may be enough offsetting over in original i p s and um, you know new sports leagues um, uh, to kind of offset the the power of Madden, but when Madden launches you know, that 's a, that's a two hundred and fifty or three hundred million dollar weekend the first the first day that 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 game goes out I mean that rivals some of the biggest movies out there um, it 's really hard to kind of turn that down that business down yeah. When well, looking at the, this market and comparing it to Hollywood, uh, you have uh, EA manufacturers very high-end and very expensive games like the blockbusters in, in Hollywood. But while uh, Hollywood and, and the film industry have all this uh, independent movies, as you mentioned, which is a very big bulk of the business, while in gaming you don't see that. So how sustainable is that for the long? The question is, uh, um, are we so are? are we very different from Hollywood in that Hollywood has a kind of a complement of high-budget and low-budget independent games. Um, You know, again, it's interesting because I think the business is changing before our eyes in a way that um, that may be something where we move towards these sort of smaller independent games. I can tell you that um, in, in my studio here in, in Redwood Shores, it's very expensive to build games, and we are really thinking about how we can change the dynamic and the cost structure. Are there different types of games that we can build? Um, what can we do to kind of ameliorate the, um, the, ex, you know, the, the very, very expensive um, uh, bills we get in, in building our products, some of which don't succeed? Um, and uh, in the future, there, we may see more independent games. Um, with that said, it's really hard to kind of create the value um, with an independent or small-budget game that you do with a big-budget game. And we just haven't seen a lot of examples of it yet, um, unless, of course, you just sort of go for a different market. And so Pogo, this this online um, community site where you can do checkers and backgammon and those sorts of games, you know, that's low fidelity, that's low cost, and uh, that's low revenue. But, you know, that's probably an example of, you know, sort of segmenting the market. But I think if you're talking about, you know, the, kind of the hardcore video gamer, um, the guy who's going to go out and buy Gears of War, which is a big game that shipped um, a couple days ago, it's re- going to be really hard to kind of take an independent approach and, there- and low, low-cost approach to building that sort of game. Very tough. Yeah? How do you test these games on the consumers before they go to market? Or, like, to see what they So the question is, how do we test our games before they go to market? Uh, we do focus tests like it was a religion. Uh, for example, on Godfather, which was done at my studio, we focus tested 1,000 pe- thousand different people um, over the course of about 30 weeks. Um, they would come in and play the game, and we'd capture their data. we capture every keystroke or... Um, or a button stroke on the controller, and uh, take that data and, and uh, sort of try to understand what the, what was going on, what the trends were, et cetera. Uh, there 's a lot of focus group testing that goes on there are kind of the classic professional focus groups where it 's behind the one you know the one way mirror and then there 's a lot of uh, what we call Kleenex testing, which is um, more of a low fidelity but high volume uh, focus testing where you bring people in you sit them down you kind of capture the keystrokes but what you 're really doing is you're kind of looking at their face while they 're playing a game and sort of understanding are they enjoying it are they getting frustrated um that that sort of thing so there 's a lot of that that happens, yeah. You talk about MMO going into the consoles, and with the general trend of consoles beating the PCs, do you think there are any areas where the PCs will remain dominant in, in the future? Yes, good, good question. So the, the question is, uh, will, will the PC remain dominant in, a, in area, any area? Um, yeah, I I think... Well, I guess... I don't know if I would say dominant. I just think that the, the PC is just going to be... Um, in the landscape, you know, for the for the time being and for the sort of foreseeable future, um, it's interesting. Every every generation of uh, video game machine tends to steal one genre away as, as we go, and uh, you know, we've seen first-person shooters. Uh, that were kind of traditionally uh, only lived and only successful on the PC, that has really moved to the console in this last generation. There's a lot of examples of first-person shooters that have moved over and been very successful on the console. One of our products, Medal of Honor, is a first-person shooter that um, I think was was partly responsible for moving the audience. Um, This generation, we're kind of looking closely to see what happens with uh, high-definition television. You can see a lot more detail. And for those of you who played games in, in, um, in high def, 780 or 1080, 10, 1080 or 720, um, you get a sense of you know, just how much more you can see on screen. I think that's going to probably fuel one, yet one more genre going from PC over into, into console. Uh, it could be real-time strategy, which is something we've been experimenting with. Um, but with all of that said, it just feels like there's, uh, there's a lot. Independent games are, you know, will generally come out on PC. Um, PCs are all hooked up, so you get the whole online uh, component. Um, you can edit things. You can create things better on, on the PC. So I think it's always going to be there. Um, and I just, you know, I don't see it going away. And and I'm not a believer in the PC and the TV merging into one, uh, certainly from a game standpoint. So I see it just, you know, they're both being there as, as kind of as compliments. Yeah cross-platform games, um, how have you adapted to the radical difference between the Wii controller and all the other interfaces? The question is, how, did, how do we deal with the fact that the Wii controller is very different from the other input devices? Um, the way we're dealing with that is that we are actually uh, setting up studios that focus entirely on the Wii platform. I think that's the way we're going to deal with it because it is—it's a really—it's kind of an odd bird. It's a current generation look with what I call a next-next generation controller, and so there's really no very little synergies um, from a porting standpoint um, in terms of moving graphics over and and content and and uh, and code over from PlayStation 3 and X360 onto the Wii. In fact, it's much better to go from current generation in terms of your content and your engineering your your code. Um, but the controller is so radically different that it requires just different thinking and expertise and experience to really take advantage of what that con- controller can do. So I think, you know, our answer is really just create separated, dedicated groups, and we, we're big believers in the Wii and the, and the potential success, so we think it's worth kind of that startup cost to have these separate groups that just all they do is build Nintendo Wii games. So are you still playing the port um, a lot of your major franchise Um I, I wouldn't use the word port because I think these are just, they really are different experiences. I think out of the gate, I guess you can port stuff over it. We've got uh, Tiger Woods, for example, coming out in March, and the game kind of looks the same, but when you play it with the controller, it is just a unique experience. Um, I don't think we're going to see much more of that. I think we're going to start creating originals. I think that's the way we're going to be successful in Nintendo, is to create originals that are made specifically for the controller. There's probably nothing more important than um, how the controller relates with the software. A your process for creating new who, who comes up with hardware uh, or internal? To do that? So the question is how do we create what's a process of creating new properties? Uh, this, again, this is a it's really kind of hard to um, to describe this because there's no real uh, process that we go through. It just sort of organically happens. Um, at a company like Electronic Arts, you've got a lot of products that are already in motion, and we need to kind of do those every year, every couple years. And then we get licenses thrown away, so you know, Superman and Batman and Lord of the Rings, and we did Godfather and a lot, a lot of those, so that's how new IPs can start. In terms of creating new ones, the way it happens is uh, a kind of a small team will generally come up with a concept. They will talk with an executive producer. An executive producer will go to a general manager, which is what I do, and, and talk through an idea. And then if the general manager feels like this is something that's worth funding and, and getting to a uh, prototype type level, uh, he or she will, will do that. And when you get something to a you know, level that's really worth looking at, then you kind of go broader out into the company and just sort of keeps picking up steam along the way. It'll ultimately get, get built and, and, uh, and shipped that way. But there's not like there's, a, there's this kind of definitive process. It's just it's very kind of loose and organic. And actually, I think that's probably a good thing. Um, The other thing that I would say on this topic is when I talk to people in my studio who want to pitch a game or want to create a game, what I say is think less about creating a property and think about creating a feature inside of a franchise because that takes incredible innovations. For example, the, the Tiger Swing, we've been talking about that. Creating a feature inside of a game, you can actually end up changing the whole um, value proposition of a franchise. And a good example is Tiger Woods. That was a $30 million annual franchise when it was the old method of watching the little arrow go around and you hit a couple buttons to swing. When we went to the, the analog swing, which is you know, just felt much more fluid and much more realistic, that was the fuel that grew that, um, that franchise to $120 million a year. So just creating one feature can have a profound effect on the success of a franchise. And um, um, I think that's where a lot of uh, the energy is. Uh, we're trying to have a lot of our creative energy flow into. Yeah. Um, how do you think about who you're targeting and how are you interested in changing demographics? Now? Sorry, the first part? How do you think about which audience are targeting? Um, so the question is, what, what do we think about targeting and, and uh, what are the changing demographics? Um, so let's see. The, 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 I guess the way we look at demographics is just sort of every year it ages a little bit. And uh, and obviously, I talked about earlier about how uh, female gamers are really um, uh, growing in 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 number. So we think a lot about that, and we also think about how new applications, for example, Pogo, um, is is um, um, interesting to a, a whole demographic that we weren't ever really. Um, creating games for before. So um, I think we've probably changed our opinion you know, from 10 years ago where we're just going after the 18-year-old male, um, and now we th- really do segment the way we market, we segment the way we build games. And I can tell you, when, when we start a game in my studio, one of the first discussions we have is what is that target demographic, what's the secondary demographic you're going to go after, what are the ones you're just going to steer clear from, not even bother with, because it really affects the, what you're going to build and how you're going to market your product. And you know, we're, we're in an age right now where demographics are just changing radically, and that's because more and more people are getting into gaming. Yeah? Sorry. Uh, you mentioned for the sports franchise, it's been $200 120. Can you give us five comparisons for what the objective figures are for that? I cannot. Okay. I cannot. But suffice to say that uh, it is something that we are incredibly excited about, and uh, if you kind of look at the popularity and success of Sims, uh, in particular, you know, we're thinking about it in, in very big, big ways, but um, it's just too, it's honestly too early. I don't even know what month it's going to launch. Um, I'm under a lot of pressure to make sure it happens next calendar year. You know, for, sort of forget the actual month it's going to happen. It's, when you're dealing with something that is unique and inventive as that, it's just really hard to, uh, you know, to kind of gi- give a number. Of course, we have a planned number, but um, we just, you know, can't, can't discuss that. But I will say that it is, we are very excited about it. We think it could be an industry-changing game. any one more one more in the back uh, how do you see the growth of your studios uh, worldwide compared to-, compared to what just local versus right so the question is how do how do we see our studio growth worldwide compared to local um, very topical um, issue right now because we are looking um, beyond the bay area uh to establish studios um, the obvious kind of driver of that is um, is cost with that said um, I think the way that we're going to grow our studios is um, having hubs that you know, where there's kind of core resident of expertise, design, the best engineering in the world, um, the greatest technical artists in the world. And then what you do is you sort of figure out how to partner with kind of bulk creation that can happen in, in, other, in other parts of the world. Um, That's kind of the model we're doing at my studio. There's no substitute for having the kind of engineering that exists here in the Bay Area. And we talked about just what we're up against trying to make these machines sing. Um, And then in terms of technical art, in terms of design, in terms of production, you just can't find that talent in many places. And this is why we're just absolutely dedicated to the Bay Area, dedicated to L.A., um, dedicated to Vancouver. Um, those are, you know, sort of three of the, the, uh, the sort of center points. So the way we'll work with other studios is really partnering with them and sort of figuring out, you know, what's the kind of best way to complement each other. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.